listening to our music team for the music today. We'll sing, we'll read about that, what we just sang about that. God's arms are open wide. I encourage you, friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as Savior, come to the altar today. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 54. Isaiah chapter 54. Last week we saw the glorious news that our, our sins can be forgiven, but at a great cost. The servant of God, the Messiah, must die in our place. And as sad as that may be, the good news is that because of that, we can have peace with God. And through his death, many are made righteous. Today in Isaiah 54, we will see that God makes promises to his people based on the work that the servant will do. There is good news to come. It will not happen all at once. In fact, we're going to see three different Time periods lined up here in our text. We'll see the promise to multiply his people. We'll see God's promise to love them forever unconditionally. And we'll see him give them a promise of a new secure home. So first, look at Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through th 3. We see the promise to multiply. The promise to multiply. Look at verse number 1 of, of Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is marred, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tents and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will be spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. What's going on here? You have a barren woman rejoicing. You have a command given to, to make your tent bigger. And then a promise of spreading to desolate cities. Salvation will be won by the suffering servants. We saw it last week in chapter 53. But that is 700 years from now. The people of Israel have already been trotted off into exile by Assyria. Ten of the twelve tribes, they're gone. The last two, the kingdom of Judah, are on the brink. They're getting ready to go. 700 years from now, the Messiah is going to come. <laughs> what's going to happen till then? When's it so it, what's going to happen to us? Will there still be a people of God? Because remember, when they went into exile, they don't return. That's just been the trend over the last couple hundred years. When people go into exile, they do not return. They put them in different people groups, they spread them out all over, and they hope that they will intermarry and intermix, so that way you have a one people group. We've talked about this. We see this in our own American history. People coming from all parts of the world, and yet once they come here, what do they call themselves? I am in an American. Like, well, yeah, sort of, right? But we're from all over. We're all transplants. That's what the idea was here. Just transplant everybody, and then they'll become an Assyrian. They'll become a Babylonian. And so they're gonna, there is not going to be Israel anymore. Will we ever return? Will God keep his promise? Didn't he promise to Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing? Yet at a time, so Abraham struggled to believe this promise, didn't he? And why did Abraham struggle with his promise? What was the one thing that kept making him think that God didn't keep his promise? His wife could not have a child. How can I have 
numerous offspring without one. I'm 50. No children. I'm 60. No children. Anybody in here 60 or above considering this is a good time to have another child? 60, 70, 80? Should we keep going? And Abraham's like, Lord, how will you, what's, you made a promise? This isn't possible anymore, isn't it? Some of you are like, please, Lord, no. (laughs) Not that promise, no. Friend, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. God works. He worked for Abraham. He will work for the people of Israel. His wife Sarah was barren. By the time the people of left of Israel left Egypt, they were a numerous multitude. But God's promise was not temporary. It wasn't, we'll get you to a multitude and then we're done. God's promise for the, for the land wasn't temporary. I'll give you the land, but once you mess up, you're done. God's promise for the blessing for the nations wasn't temporary. These are eternal covenants. I will, period. It will be forever, period. It's going to be forever. So the tribes, right, 10 10 of the 12 tribes are gone. The other two, they're in peril. Is the promised land, is, in, is that in peril? Is this the end? Will God keep his promise? One author said of this, that is the question that the Egyptian bondage raised back in Moses' time. It, and it's the same question that the exiles are raising here. The answer, as given here, is a resounding yes. Just as God can make a barren Sarah more fruitful than a fertile Hagar, so he too can take those that are dead in their trespasses and sins and use them to bring about abundant blessing to the entire world. Because it's not just the people of Israel that get blessed through this Abrahamic covenant. It's all the nations. To which we say, thank you, Lord, that you included the Gentiles in this. The barren people of God, like Sarah and Hannah, will bear offspring. They will have to enlarge their tents, i.e., they're going to add an addition, and then another addition to their home. Then another addition to their home. You have to keep adding on. And though they will be kicked out due to their sin, the promised land will become wild. The promised land will become desolate. Eventually, God will bring them back, and the desolate will soon be inhabited. God will keep his promise. This is key for you. It's key for me to understand. And why is that? Because the reason that people doubted God's promise here is because they were being punished for their own sin. And this thought comes into our head, and, and there are a lot of questions that are asked, in the, that are s- not stated, but they're kind of just out there in Isaiah 54. Questions that you and I think sometimes, and we wonder if we can even say them out loud. You ever read the Psalms? Sometimes David says something, so you're like, I don't, I, I don't know that we can say that. There's questions like this that are come about here in Isaiah 54. One of those, will my sin eventually thwart the promise of God? Will the hideousness that lies within negate his goodness? I, I know he loved me. I know he died for me. 
But when you look in the mirror like I do and we're being honest, what do you see? Oh, God, still. Do you love me still? Do you still care? Do I, I promise I'll never do it again. And tomorrow, what are you doing? God, forgive me. I'm back. Will you still love me today? And you wonder, because your patience and mine runs thin. Eventually, right, fool me once. Shame me, fool me twice, shame on me. So eventually, God's just going to go, you know, <laughs> all right, all right, enough of these promises that you'll stop. Eventually, God will say, all right, no, now it's too much. Friend, when he forgives your sins, he forgives your past sins, your future sins, your present sin, because you have to remember all of your sin at the cross was future. But to God, who is outside of time, all of your sin is present. He's outside of time, looking into time. All of your sin is present. Forgiven. It's paid in full. Can my sin, can the sins of Israel, no matter how great or small, can our sins overcome the promises of God? And the answer is no. To which all God's people say amen and praise the Lord. Let me repeat that. Can your sins overcome the promises of God? No, they cannot. They cannot. His grace is greater. His mercy is is deeper. His love is unending. Why can't our sins overcome God's promise? Because the suffering servant, as we learned last week in Isaiah 53, 5, was pierced for my, for your, for our transgressions. He was crushed for my, for your iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Will your sins overcome his promise it says he gives us peace with God it says that he heals us will you trust his word God will keep his promise we are healed by the suffering servant his death brings us peace if Jesus is your savior my sins and your sins cannot overcome my sins and your sins cannot thwart his promise this is the promise to multiply. It's also the promise of unending love. Look at Isaiah 54, verses 4 and 10. We'll start in verse 4. Fear not, for ye will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, ye will not be disgraced. Forget the shame of your youth. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Think of Sarah. Think of Hannah and others that were barren, that were ashamed. They felt disgraced. First phrase, verse 4, we see the phrase, the shame of your youth and reproach of your widowhood. Many authors see a connection with these two phrases to bondage in Egypt, the shame of your youth, and exile in Babylon, the reproach of your widowhood. But this is speaking of these times where they're separated and wondering, we're ashamed and we're going to bring reproach. The people got to be left alone. Thus Isaiah says, turns from the command to sing and rejoice to do not fear. Why should the people of God not fear. Won't their exile lead them in disgrace? No. God keeps his promise. 
and he alone is God. Look at verse number five. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. Let me repeat that. Listen to this verse. It's so fantastic. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. Just let that verse just flood your mind. Let it pour over you. The one that created me is my husband. He's the Lord of hosts. He's holy. He's the God of the whole earth. He's mine. He's the maker. He's the husband, and we are his bride. Ladies, if, if you are married to a rotten husband, I'm sorry, and I'm being serious. I'm sorry that this, this may not seem like a good deal to you. If your husband does not lead you spiritually, if your husband does not lead your home, if your husband is not what he should be, and maybe he's here today, I apologize. That is not who God is. He is a good husband who will never stop loving. He is a husband that will continue to go after. Men, this is who we are to be like. If you have that in question, read Ephesians 5. Because we are to love our wives like Christ loves the bride. It's one of the hardest commands that I find in Scripture for me to follow. Because I feel like I fail at it day after day. Ladies, please do not let this description of God push you away. He is the husband. He is what all husbands should be like, but we fail at. He is the husband. He is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah uses this phrase over 50 times in the book. Remember its meaning? One commentator noted this phrase, Lord of hosts, it's plural. Lord of hosts, it's plural. And it indicates that he himself is in every potentiality and power. He is, it shows his complexity, his omnipotence. It shows his uniqueness, that there is none like him. And also it's connected to the vast host that he is in control of, the army of the Lord that is at his side. He is the Holy One. We are to be holy. Why? Because he is holy. He is your Redeemer. Again, that word kinsman Redeemer coming up. He is the one that pays our debt to buy us out of the slave market of sin. He is the God of the whole earth. What did God say of himself in Isaiah 45? I am God, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I am the God of the whole earth. At the beginning of this study in Isaiah, we talked about the idols, which were a nothing. Remember that Hebrew term? The idol is a nothing. You worship your nothings. I am the God of the whole world. How awesome is our God? And as we go through the next three verses, Isaiah will focus on two of those terms, the Redeemer and him being the husband, husband and Redeemer. We see first he's the husband in verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. These verses remind us of the prophet Hosea. I don't know if you remember when we went through the minor prophets, we went through the book of Hosea, and we saw the marriage that God had called Hosea to. Hosea's wife was unfaithful from the beginning. 
And in the end, she left him. And God commanded Hosea, go take her back. Go take her back as your wife. Hosea and Isaiah overlapped on timelines. They could have known each other. We don't know for sure, but they could have. But these verses here in verses 6 through 8 remind me awful lot about the book of Hosea. God's people have been unfaithful, which angered God. Yet while God's people are unfaithful, he is faithful. While his people spurn him, he loves them. For this brief moment, which spans the exiles for the northern and the southern tribes, they must deal with their punishment for sin. Yet their sin cannot overcome God's promises, and their sins cannot negate God's love. In verse 7, God promises that he will, with great compassion, gather them. In verse 8, God promises everlasting love. He will with compassion. He will have compassion on them. Not only is he their husband, he is their redeemer. In Hosea 3, verse number 2, Hosea is commanded to go back and buy his wife from a amorous lifestyle. Make her your wife again. Hosea is having to do this literally. God says, go do it. And you're going to be a sign to the nation of what is happening spiritually. My people go away day after day after day after day after day after day. Christian, have you been unfaithful to your Savior? Are there things that have taken your heart over him? How much time do you spend getting ready today to look nice for Sunday service? How much time do you spend in the week in his word? Just take that. The time you took to get dolled up today so you can look nice in front of people that you want to think, you want them to think of you that you're holy. Versus the time you spent Sunday to Sunday actually in his word. Actually in prayer. Have other things crept in? Have you been unfaithful to your Savior? Hosea tells us. God tells us here in Isaiah. Even though you're unfaithful, you cannot negate my love. Does it mean we should continue being unfaithful? Should we look at God's grace and say, I'm going to keep sinning? What does Paul tell us in Romans? God forbid. We love him, we keep his commandments. But God shows us and uses this example in Hosea to show that no matter how unfaithful God's people are, he will pay our debts, he will buy us back, for he is the ultimate faithful husband. He is the everlasting, compassionate, loving God. To show how he loves and what he and that when he says he will do something, he will do it. He's now going to go back to the promise of Noah. He reminds his people that when he made a promise to Noah, he kept it. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should go no more over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on me. In verse 9, God reminds his people of the rainbow promise in Genesis 9, 13. You ever see a rainbow, and they're beautiful. You see a rainbow and should remind us God keeps his word. That's a promise. God keeps his word. Just like that promise to know about the flood, God promises those that will be sent to exile that 
even though they're going there for their sin, his punishment will not be forever, and he still loves them. To Noah, he gives a physical reminder. The rainbow. It's a guarantee. However, here in verse 10, we have something opposite. Though the physical world falls apart, it's like coming undone. Mountains are destroyed. Hills disappear. Crazy physical events may happen. God's love will never go away. So instead of using the physical as a promise, God says that even if everything physical is destroyed, his love for us will not be. His love for us transcends the physical. His love for us even transcends time because his love is eternal. One writer said of this, for Noah, a stable ordinance of creation became the guarantee of peace with God. But Isaiah goes further. Even should creation lose its stable permanence, with mountains shaking and hills tottering, there is a covenant that cannot totter. The servant bore the punishment that made peace, and now that peace is a covenant of reality more steadfast than the cosmic fabric and rooted in the divine compassion. The emotion of anger is gone forever, but the emotion of surging love abides. No matter what happens around us, God's love is for us, and it's unconditional. It's unending, and it's ever-present. Christian, God loves you right now. Right now. Right here. Has the last week Last month been awful for you spiritually? God loves you right now. Are you walking through the valley? God loves you right now. So far we've seen this promise to multiply the people of God. The exile and the consequences of their sin will not overcome the promise of God. We've seen that God promised to love his people forever. But will the people of, ever, of God ever get to a place where they, can, where they won't have to deal with sin? Will they ever get to a place where they can be with God again? Will they ever be finally safe from all their enemies? Next, we see the next big promise here in verses 11 and on, the promise of a secure home. Look at verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. The people of God are storm-tossed. They're shaken like Noah and his family on the boat. They weren't comforted, but God has a message of comfort for his people. If we go back to Isaiah 40, verse 1, what does God say? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. To comfort them, he makes these promises about the future home. He promises to be personally with them. He promises to teach them, to give them peace, to establish his people in righteousness, to keep them safe from all their enemies. In verse number 11 and 12, he promises them this new city is going to be adorned in beauty. In the middle of verse 11, God says, I will set your stones in antimony, or glistening stones, or turquoise. Lay your foundation with sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of agate or ruby, gates of carnicles of beryl, and your wall of precious stones. The city's made up of precious stones in brilliant color. Today we had John Perry read from Revelation 21, speaking of this city. You did a fantastic job reading those fantastic words in there. Right? Some of you are going, man, I'm glad I don't have to read that out loud. Thinking through all those different stones he had to read, which I don't even know if you know what half those stones are. And that's why some of these, your translation may have a different stone because it's uncertain. Which one? It's like we're getting to the hue of the color 
as opposed to which stone, we don't know exactly which. The point being, it's beautiful. It's costly. It's precious. Isaiah and John in Revelation, Isaiah here and John in Revelation, both knew a day is coming where we will get to live with God in a beautiful, the most beautiful thing you could, your mind could come up with. And beyond that, streets paved with gold, but then the paved with gold, it's clear. I mean, I can't even process that, and I'm colorblind. How does this even work? Sometimes I think when we think of heaven, we talk about it in these great terms as if the greatest thing about heaven is its beauty. One gate, one pearl. How crazy big. Foundation, found foundation of stone after stone. People thinking of God being the light itself, that going through this prism of colors, like this constant rainbow surrounding you. Man, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. That's not the greatest thing. But when I get to heaven, now I get to be in streets of gold. I'm going to be skipping down with all the people that I knew that have passed away. Is that great? Yeah. Not the greatest thing. Friend, if your greatest desire to get to heaven is that when you get to see your loved ones, you are missing it. And I wonder if you know this Savior. I'm serious. Not, no disrespect to those that have passed on before. What is the greatest thing you could ever be given access to? A past loved one? An enormous city raised on foundation of precious stone? Or to be with God himself? To see your Savior face to face. Will you want to look elsewhere? Will you? Will your eyes want to gaze anywhere else? Will you even notice what you're running on as you're going to your Savior? Will you care what the gold looks like or what the stones are around you as you're flying into his arms saying, Praise God, thank you for saving me. Now where's my family? You serious? Can I stay? Can I sit here at your feet for all eternity? What would you have me do? Can I, can I stay? Give me that thousand years. That's like a day. Let me be the servant in the house of God. Will it be beautiful? Unparalleled. Will it be awesome to be with those that have passed on? Unbelievable. Will any of those things compare to seeing your Savior face to face? Absolutely not. And if that is your greatest desire, Christian, beg God to reorient your heart because he is not king of your home. Your family has become your idol. Jesus needs to reign we get to be with him. Look at verse number 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. 
thee. Great shall be the peace of your children. God will be with us. You will be with your Savior. The people of God in Jerusalem, they were worried about their future generations and the, ge- and the future of their generations. God says, I will teach them personally. Their peace will be, can you, can you describe it? Going back to verse 3 again, he, he's wondering, well, what are we going to do? Is there going to be a future? Yeah, there's going to be a future. There's going to be a continued future. Let's keep adding all that awesomeness because, again, speaking of that peace, the peace at the end of verse 13, the peace that passes all understanding is a present reality forever. You remain in peace. Just, man, I'm with my Savior. It's good. It's all good. The people in verse 11 that were afflicted, storm-tossed, they weren't comforted, are now overwhelmed in peace. Look at more goodness. Look at verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear from your terror, for it shall not come near you. In righteousness we are established. How are we made righteous? Isaiah 53, 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. The suffering servant takes on our sins. We get his righteousness. So we are not only made righteous by God, but we are planted firmly. We are established firmly in righteousness. Also, we find out there will be far, will be far from oppression. Terror is going to flee away as the peace of God is flooding our minds and our hearts and our lives. It's like terror, just like packing up and running, never to come back again. The presence of God, that peace, the shalom, that word that's used here, flooding our hearts and minds day after day after day. You struggle with anxiety. Struggle with fear. How glorious will this day be? Last, we see the city of God will be eternally safe and secure from all enemies and oppressors. Look at verse 15. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me, declares the Lord. No weapon, no oppressor can come against God's people. Because as he says at the end of verse 17, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is your coming inheritance. Have you ever received an inheritance? You ever receive your inheritance? You ever look forward to receiving your inheritance? Usually if you do, it's typically something good. Sometimes it's not only monetary value. I remember as uh, my wife's family, her, as her grandpa passed away in January, they were talking about what would you want of grandpa's, and this uh, chaos ensued over a candy dish. I said chaos lightly, but like, oh, I want it, I want it, but it's like the list of who wanted it was like 25, and there's only 15 people present. Everybody wanted it because that was the little spot where they got candy from grandma and grandpa. That's where memories lasted. And apparently it meant that their parents probably didn't let them have much candy and grandma and grandpa let them have as much as they wanted. That's what it seems like. And the candy dish meant just unfettered joy (laughs) as a kid. You know, sometimes I hear it to me think, man, I can't wait to get that because of all the good it brings back. This inheritance 
God gives his saints, his servants, is better than anything we can imagine. But it's not to bring back good memories. It's to cover up the bad and to bring us into immense hope for the entire future. As he wipes away our tears, as we think of how many times we failed him, as he gives us a new heart, we can fully, firmly obey him for all our days to never sin and struggle with sin again. This is the heritage of the servants of God, that we get to be with him, to have his peace flooding our minds, to be established in righteousness for all time. This is for our future. This is not for good memories past. This is for your good forever. This is the inheritance of the servants of God. What seems the best part to you? The beautiful foundation? Loss of anxiety and fear? Removal of oppressors? Precious stones everywhere? Being with your long-lost loved ones? Seeing your Savior face to face? Having Him teach you who He is day after day? Having Him grant you peace that passes all understanding as a regular mindset? establishing you in righteousness and being with you for the rest of time, beyond time. How awesome is the heritage of the servants of the Lord? So what does all this mean for us today? What can we apply to our lives? First off, friends, are you a servant of the Lord? Have you ever placed your faith in Christ? Is Jesus your Redeemer? If not, will you give your life to Him today. Confess your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Let him forgive you of all your sin. Repent today. Believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He did die. He did rise. He did ascend on high and he lives forever to intercede. Trust him. You do so by simply calling out what is Romans 10 calls for. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a magical prayer simply you just communicating to him, talking to him, saying, Lord, forgive me. God, save me. I give you everything I have. I am yours. Allow him to be your Savior. If you are here and you receive Christ as Lord, let me ask you a couple questions. First off, Christian, do you sometimes wonder if your sin can overpower the promises of God? Are you living in defeat because you feel like there's no use? God going to discard you? Have you ever wondered if God made a mistake in you? If he loved me, why do I want to do the exact opposite things he told me to do? Is he just going to cast me off if I keep doing the wrong thing? Christian, do you really believe that you are stronger than God? Confess your sin. Be holy today. And trust that God will keep his promise. What does he promise us in Philippians 1? He who began a good work in you will complete it. Amen and amen. He will complete it. Do you look in the mirror and you're wondering, I don't feel complete. Not yet. Not yet, Christian. Keep going. Keep going. Join us. Join the rest of us in this process of trotting on and falling, trotting on and falling. God, make me more like you today.
knowing he will complete the work. Not there yet. Not there yet, but someday. Next, do you wonder if God really loves you? As I mentioned before, this chapter answers so many of our secret questions that we, we don't think we can ask out loud. Does God really love me? Even after all I've done, does he still care? As I said earlier, Christian, God loves you right now, right here. All of your sins are horrific. All of your sins were also placed on him. He had to die for them, just like he had to die for mine. I feel like every day I'm adding to the list. But all of my sins are present to God. All of my sins have been forgiven by God, not because I'm good, not because I'm great, but because God loves me. Does God love me? Yes. No matter how foolish, no matter how sinful you and I are, no matter how awful things may get, he will always love me. Next, let me ask you this last question here. How can you praise God today in this week for all he is and all he's done? He's your maker. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Holy One. He's the Redeemer. He's the God of the whole earth. He will never stop loving you. He will bring you to himself and you'll get to dwell with him. He will teach you. He will flood you with peace. He will remove every fear. He will remove every oppressor. How should you respond to this God? What would he have you do? What would it look like to live a life worthy of him? What would that look like? Go live that life. What would God have you do? What's his call? Do justice? Love mercy? Walk humbly with your God. Let's bow forward and pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for our Savior that he makes many righteous. God, we pray for those that are here that may not know you as Savior. May today be the day of salvation for them. We pray for those that are here that are struggling, ensnared with sin. Those struggling to find victory. Lord, pray you help me, help us, that when we sin, that we recognize that our sin cannot overcome in Christ. To those doubting if you love, Lord, help them to know that your love is unconditional. It is everlasting. So Lord, help us then to live for you, to be what you'd have us be. In Jesus' name.